Billy Bragg singing North Sea Bubble. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me, you can still reach me at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com or follow on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can find out more about Bernie2020 and Howie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. First up is a piece actually written by the artist that you just heard. This piece is written by Billy Bragg and is published at TheGuardian.com quote-unquote cancel culture doesn't stifle debate but it does challenge the old order outside broadcasting house in london the bbc has erected a statue to one of its former employees george orwell the author leans forward hand on hip as if to make a telling point carved into the wall beside him is a quote from the preface of animal farm Quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. It's a snappy slogan that fits neatly into a tweet, but whenever I walk past this effigy of the English writer that I most admire, it makes me cringe. Surely, the author of 1984 would understand that people don't want to hear that two plus two equals five and if you listen closely that lyric was part of the song north sea bubble in leningrad the people say perestroika can be explained this way ask your grandfather the people who told us that two and two is ten are now trying to tell us that two and two is five it's about gaslighting without being named and called gaslighting being told that what we know 
and what we believe are not true and that the truth is some falsehood that they've made up back to the piece for orwell's quote is not a defense of liberty it's a demand for license and has become a foundational slogan for those who willfully misconstrue one for the other over the past decade the right to make inflammatory statements has become a hot button issue for the reactionary right who have constructed tropes such as political correctness and virtuous virtue signaling to enable them to police the limits of social change while portraying themselves as victims of an organized assault on liberty itself the latest creation in their war against accountability is quote unquote cancel culture an ill-defined notion that takes in corporate moves to recognize structural racism the toppling of statues social media bullying public shaming and other diverse attempts to challenge the status quo an open letter that is clearly decrying cancel culture without naming it as such signed by 150 academics and writers from all sides of the political spectrum appeared this week in harper's magazine the signatories complained of a censoriousness that was stifling debate and called for arguments to be settled by persuasion rather than action lip service was paid to the menace of donald trump but the main thrust of their argument was a howl of anguish from a group that has suddenly found its views no longer treated with reverence many of those who attach their names to the letter are long-standing cultural arbiters who in the past would only have had to fear the disapproval of their peers social media has burst their bubble and now they find that anyone with a twitter account can challenge their opinions the letter was their demand for a safe space one of the signatories the new york times opinion columnist barry weiss touched on the source of this malaise when she claimed recently that a quote civil war was going on across publications and companies across the u.s between those she described as the mostly young wokes and the mostly 40 plus liberals was it really a surprise to discover that some younger people might hold strong views that diverge with those of older generations her revelation seems to be borne out in the most contentious issue in britain politics or british politics brexit opinion is divided less on class or ideological lines and more by age political conflict today is increasingly a battle between the young and the old before the rise of social media the anger of young people was restricted to pop music print and broadcast media kept youth corralled on the margins we may have been angry about thatcherism but our ability to sway mainstream public opinion was limited today a 22 year old footballer with a twitter account can force the government to make a u-turn in less than 48 hours darnella frazier whose smartphone footage of four minneapolis police officers killing george floyd provoked outrage around the world is just 17 years old the ability of middle-aged gatekeepers to control the agenda 
has been usurped by a new generation of activists who can spread information through their own networks, allowing them to challenge narratives promoted by the status quo. The great progressive movements of the 21st century have sprung from these networks. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, Extinction Rebellion. While they may seem desperate, disparate in their aims, what they have in common is a demand for accountability. Although free speech remains the fundamental bedrock of a free society, for everyone to enjoy the benefits of freedom, liberty needs to be tempered by two further dimensions, equality and accountability. Without equality, those in power will use their freedom of expression to abuse and marginalize others. Without accountability, liberty can mutate into the most dangerous of all freedoms, impunity. We look down on authoritarian societies because their leaders act without restraint. Yet in Trump, we see a president who has never been held to account in his personal life or professional career, and his voters love him for it. Boris Johnson's supporters, when faced with examples of his lack of responsibility, shrug and just say, it's Boris being Boris. Impunity has become a sign of strength. You could see it in the face of the former police officer, Derek Chauvin, as he kept his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. In response to this trend, a new generation has risen that prioritizes accountability over free speech to those whose liberal ideals are proving no defense against the rising tide of duplicitous authoritarianism. This has come as a shock. But when reason, respect, and responsibility are all under threat, accountability offers us a better foundation on which to build a cohesive society, one where everyone feels that their voice is heard. And if you want more from Billy Bragg on the three dimensions of freedom, look for his book, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, where he goes into liberty, equality, and accountability in more detail. As you may have noticed, if this isn't your first episode, I've changed the name of Bernie 2020 to Howie 2020. Bernie clearly is not going to be the nominee for the Democrats. And so I need to look for another candidate to vote for. I could write in Bernie. Bernie still stands for everything he's always stood for and is a good choice. But, and I would write in Bernie if there was not another candidate out there that fell in line with my beliefs and supported the things that I support to a significant degree. There is another candidate out there that does that. Spoiler alert. That candidate is not Joe Biden. That candidate, of course, is Howie Hawkins. Howie Hawkins has secured the Green Party nomination for president and also 
the Socialist Party USA, I think I got that name right, nomination for president. It's a a strong strategy to try to tie together some of the um, different groups on the left in a unity platform, a unity run for the presidency. Um, and it's something that is needed on the left. The left, and I'm talking about the real left, I'm not talking about what some consider the left. What you hear about in the mainstream media is the left. Those liberal Democrats, that's not the left. Um, the real left, the left that is, there's some of those real left members that do take part in the Democratic Party. Uh, goddess bless them um, for trying to get that institution to do better. But as Utah Phillips said, when he ran for president, rest in power, Utah, uh, he said, quote, I shopped around for a party. I looked at the Republicans. I looked at the Democrats. And he said of the Democrats, it's like rearranging the deck, chair, deck chairs on the Titanic. He said of the Republicans, it's like a refrigerator light comes on the light goes off but doesn't really have anything uh important to say so uh utah's solution was to create his own party which was the sloth and indolence party i i would certainly vote for utah phillips um but alas utah passed away but how he's running so why would I support Howie? I would support Howie. I do support Howie because of what Howie stands for. It's why I supported Bernie Sanders. It's what so many people don't understand that many of us don't choose a candidate on their likelihood that they might win. Otherwise, you might as well choose Trump. There's a strong likelihood that he might win. Uh, that's, a, from my perspective, a garbage way to choose your candidate. I've said this before on this podcast. When I turned 18 and finally got the right to vote, I promised myself I will never hold my nose and vote. I will never vote for someone that I don't believe in. That doesn't mean I need to agree 100% with everything that candidate stands for, but it needs it it means that fundamentally that candidate needs to stand for the things that I believe in and I care about and I want moved forward in the political sphere. How he does that. Howie Hawkins uh, running mate, his vice presidential candidate is Angela Walker. You can go to HowieHawkins.us and see a lot more about the policies of Howie and Angela. I'm going to read you read through the platform summary from that site. And in future episodes, I'll share more. Platform summary. COVID-19 emergency measures for the duration 
of the crisis. Medicare to pay for COVID-19 testing and treatment and all emergency health care. Defense Production Act to rapidly plan the production and distribution of medical supplies and a universal test, contact trace, and quarantine program to safely reopen the economy. An OSHA temporary standard to provide enforceable PPE protection for workers. $2,000 a month to all adults over age 16 and $500 per child. Loans to all businesses and hospitals for payroll and fixed overhead to be forgiven if all workers are kept on the payroll. Moratorium on evictions, foreclosures, and utility shutoffs. Cancel rent, mortgage, and utility payments. Federal government pays those bills. High-income people pay taxes on this relief. Suspend student loan payments with 0% interest accumulation. Federal universal rent control. Aid to state and local governments sufficient to keep essential services running. A 10-year, $42 trillion eco-socialist Green New Deal for economic recovery through a just transition to 100% clean energy by 2030. Universal mail-in ballots for the 2020 general election. Eco-Socialist Green New Deal Public ownership and planning in energy, manufacturing, and transportation. Zero to negative carbon emissions by 2030. 100% clean energy by 2030. Ban fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure. No nukes. Zero waste manufacturing and recycling. Electrified rails, freight, intercity high speed, and intracity trolleys. Heat pumps to heat and cool buildings. Regenerative organic agriculture. Parity pricing and supply management for all agricultural commodities. Civilian Conservation Corps for forest, wetland, and habitat restoration. Peace policies. Pledge no first use of nuclear weapons. Unilaterally disarm to minimum credible deterrent. Negotiate with nuclear powers to enact a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. End the endless wars, U.S. troops home. Cut the military budget by 75%. Invest the savings in a global green new deal. Use diplomacy and international law to promote peace, human rights, and democracy. Economic Bill of Rights Job guarantee, guaranteed minimum income above poverty, $20 minimum wage, affordable housing for all through universal rent control and public housing, Medicare for all, a community-controlled national health service, lifelong free public education, pre-K through college, secure retirement, double Social Security benefits, Socialist economy. Worker cooperatives. 
public ownership of big banks and industries, public monetary authority, democratic economic planning, production for use within ecological limits, political democracy, ranked choice national popular vote for president, proportional representation in Congress, end party suppression, fair ballot access, end voter suppression, restore the pre-clearance provision to the Voting Rights Act, right to vote constitutional amendment, automatic voter registration, voting rights for felons, auditable paper balloting, full public campaign finance, we the people amendment to end corporate personhood and money is speech legal doctrines, DC statehood, social justice, enforce anti-discrimination laws, restore affirmative action to provide equal opportunities, student and medical debt relief, defend abortion rights, Equality Act, Equal Rights Amendment, Reparations for African Americans, Honor Indian Treaty Rights, Rights for Farm Workers under Fair Labor Standards Act, Close Migrant Detention Camps, Swift Family Reunification, Legal Status for Undocumented Immigrants, Open Borders like Within the European Union, Criminal and Civil Justice, Monitor and prosecute white racist terrorists. Federal investigations of local police misconduct. Community control of the police. End mass incarceration. Treat drug abuse as a health problem, not a criminal problem. Legalize marijuana. Decriminalize personal possession of hard drugs. Drug treatment on demand. Decriminalize sex work fight corporate crime, and warrantless mass surveillance, pardon whistleblowers and political prisoners, media democracy, restore net neutrality, antitrust action against media conglomerates and social media platforms, socialize social media and e-commerce monopolies, Diversify private media ownership. Fund independent community-based public media. Tax justice. End Social Security tax cap on high incomes. End fossil fuel subsidies. Cut corporate welfare. Financial transactions tax. Progressive wealth tax. Progressive estate tax. More progressive personal and business income taxes and land value tax. So that is an outline. It was what they are calling their platform summary at uh, HowieHawkins.us, the site for the presidential campaign of Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker. And in a few minutes, we'll hear more from Howie and Angela with a piece focused on police brutality. And this next piece, before we hear 
the Howie and Angela piece is also focused on police brutality. This piece is written by Jonathan Levinson and Conrad Wilson and is published at opb.org. In the early hours of July 15, after a night spent protesting at the Multoma County Justice Center and Mark O. Hatfield Federal Courthouse, Mark Pettibone and his friend Connor O'Shea decided to head home. It had been a calm night compared to most protesting downtown. By 2 a.m., law enforcement hadn't used any tear gas. With only a few exceptions, both the Portland Police Bureau and federal law enforcement officers had stayed out of sight. A block west of Chapman Square, Pettibone and O'Shea bumped into a group of people who warned them that people in camouflage were driving around the area in unmarked minivans, grabbing people off the street. Quote, so that was terrifying to hear, Pettibone said. They had barely made it half a block when an unmarked minivan pulled up in front of them. I see guys in camo, O'Shea said. Four or five of them pop out, open the door, and it was just like, oh shit, I don't know who you are or what you want with us. Federal law enforcement officers have been using unmarked vehicles to drive around downtown Portland and detain protesters since at least July 14. Personal accounts and multiple videos posted online show the officers driving up to people, detaining individuals with no explanation of why they're being arrested and driving off. The tactic appears to be another escalation in federal force deployed on Portland city streets, as federal officials and President Donald Trump have said they plan to, quote, quell nightly protests outside the federal courthouse and Multnomah County Justice Center that have lasted for more than six weeks. Federal officers have charged at least 13 people with crimes related to the protests so far, while others have been arrested and released, including Pettibone. They also left one demonstrator hospitalized with skull fractures after shooting him in the face with so-called less lethal munitions, July 11. Officers from the U.S. Marshals Special Operations Group and Customs and Border Protection's BORTAC have been sent to Portland to protect federal property during the recent protests against racism and police brutality. But interviews conducted by OPB show officers are also detaining people on Portland streets who aren't near federal property, nor is it clear that all of the people being arrested have engaged in criminal activity. Demonstrators like O'Shea and Pettibone said they think they were targeted by federal officers for simply wearing black clothing in the area of the demonstration. O'Shea said he ran when he saw people wearing camouflage jump out of an unmarked vehicle. He said he hid when a second unmarked van pursued him. Video shot by O'Shea and provided to OPB shows a dark screen as O'Shea narrates the scene. Metadata from the video confirms the time and place of the protesters' account. Quote, Feds are driving around grabbing people off the streets, O'Shea said on the video. I didn't do anything fucking wrong. I'm recording this. I had to let somebody know that this is what happens. Pettibone did not escape 
the federal officers. Quote, I'm basically tossed into the van, Pettibone said, and I had my beanie pulled over my face so I couldn't see, and they held my hands over my head. Pettibone and O'Shea both said they couldn't think of anything they might have done to end up targeted by law enforcement. They attend protests regularly, but they said they aren't instigators. They don't spray paint buildings, shine laser pointers at officers, or do anything else other than attend protests, which law enforcement have regularly deemed, quote, unlawful assemblies. Blinded by his hat in an unmarked minivan full of armed people dressed in camouflage and body armor who hadn't identified themselves, Pettibone said he was driven around downtown before being unloaded inside a building. He wouldn't learn until after his release that he had been inside the federal courthouse. Quote, It was basically a process of facing many walls and corners as they patted me down and took my picture and rummaged through my belongings, Pettibone said. One of them said, This is a whole lot of nothing. Pettibone said he was put into a cell. Soon after, two officers came in to read him his Miranda rights. They didn't tell him why he was being arrested. He said they asked him if he wanted to waive his rights and answer some questions, but Pettibone declined and said he wanted a lawyer. The interview was terminated, and about 90 minutes later, he was released. He said he did not receive any paperwork, citation, or record of his arrest. Quote, I just happened to be wearing black on a sidewalk in downtown Portland at the time, Pettibone said, and that apparently is grounds for detaining me. In a statement, the U.S. Marshals Service declined to comment on the practice of using unmarked vehicles, but said their officers had not arrested Pettibone. Quote, all United States Marshals Service arrestees have public records of arrest documenting their charges. Our agency did not arrest or detain Mark James Pettibone. OPB sent DHS an extensive list of questions about Pettibone's arrest, including what is the legal justification for making arrests away from federal property? What is the legal justification for searching people who are not participating in criminal activity? Why are federal officers using civilian vehicles and taking people away in them? Are the arrests federal officers make legal under the Constitution? If so, how? After 7 p.m. Thursday, a DHS spokesperson responded on background that they could confirm Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf was in Portland during the day. The spokesperson didn't acknowledge the remaining questions. Quote, It's like stop and frisk meets Guantanamo Bay, said attorney Juan Chavez, director of the Civil Rights Project at the Oregon Justice Resource Center. Chavez has worked on litigation surrounding the weeks of protests and helped lead efforts to curb local police from using tear gas and munitions on protesters. He called the arrest by federal officers, quote, terrifying. You have laws regarding probable cause that can lead to arrests, he said. It sounds more like abduction. It sounds like they're kidnapping people off the streets. Ashley Albies, a civil rights attorney with the National Lawyers Guild, said Pettibone's detention is an example of intimidation by federal law enforcement and noted that people have a First Amendment right 
to demonstrate. She also said law enforcement officials have to follow procedures when they detain someone. Quote, I would be surprised to see that pulling up in an unmarked van, grabbing people off the street, is an acceptable policy for a criminal investigation, Albeans said. In a letter released Thursday, Wolf said, quote, Portland has been under siege for 47 straight days by a violent mob while local political leaders refuse to restore order to protect their city. A federal courthouse is a symbol of justice, Wolf wrote, denigrating protests against racism in the United States criminal justice system as an angry mob. To attack it is to attack America. KOIN was first to report Thursday that Wolf was visiting Portland to view damage to the federal courthouse. This week, Trump has repeatedly spoken out about what he calls lawlessness in the city. He praised the role of federal law enforcement officers in Portland and alluded to increasing their presence in cities nationwide. Speaking to Fox News on Thursday, acting U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan called the protesters criminals. Quote, I don't want to get ahead of the president and his announcement, Morgan said, but the Department of Justice is going to be involved in this. DHS is going to be involved in this, and we're really going to take a stand across the board, and we're going to do what needs to be done to protect the men and women of this country. Early Thursday morning, Portland police tried a new approach to stop the protests. Officers cleared Lounsdale and Chapman Squares, including Riot Ribs, a barbecue stand that had been cooking free food since July 4. The city said it was closing the parks for maintenance. By early afternoon, fences had been installed around both parks. Police arrested nine people during the closure, including three of the people who ran Riot Ribs. They face a variety of charges, including trespassing and disorderly conduct. Mayor Ted Wheeler's office declined to offer comment on the latest events involving federal officers, but reiterated a statement from earlier in the week, saying federal officers should be restricted to guarding federal property. Quote, we do not need or want their help, Wheeler said. The best thing they can do is stay inside their building or leave Portland altogether. Oregon Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley said if Wolf is coming to inflame the situation in Portland so the president can, quote, look tough, the acting DHS leader should leave. Quote, federal forces shot an unarmed protester in the face, Merkley said in a tweet. These shadowy forces have been escalating, not preventing violence. Oregon Governor Kate Brown similarly called for federal law enforcement officers to leave Portland. She added, Wolf is on a mission to provoke confrontation for political purposes. This political theater from President Trump has nothing to do with public safety, Brown said in a statement. The president is failing to lead this nation. Now he is deploying federal officers to patrol the streets of Portland in a blatant abuse of power by the federal government. And here we are back with a piece by Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker. Angela Walker, once again, is the vice presidential candidate for the Green Party of the United States and the Socialist Party of the U.S. Um, and Howie Hawkins is the presidential candidate for both. 
This is also published at HowieHawkins.us. We stand in solidarity with a righteous national uprising for racial justice sparked by the police lynching of George Floyd. Trump is calling the protesters thugs and terrorists. In order to incite and justify violence by the police, the military, and white racist vigilantes against the nonviolent uprising. Biden's speech on the uprising never supports the protests, but starts by scolding the violent fringe, tells the police not to use excessive force, and opines that it will take a generation to reverse systemic racism. We are here to tell Trump to go to hell and Biden to get out of the way because we won't wait. The Hawkins-Walker campaign team is out on the streets participating in protests throughout the country. We are in this movement for the long haul. We won't settle for cosmetic reforms. We want fundamental change in the governance, practices, and culture of policing, which is a linchpin at the intersection of racial oppression with class exploitation at the heart of the capitalist system. The movement must be sustained if we are going to end the police brutality and racism. We cannot be satisfied with token adjustments to a policing system that is designed to protect the capitalist system in which the racial oppression of blacks and other people of color has long been embedded to magnify the class exploitation of the working class majority from every race. Reforms that do not include who controls the police, who they work for, who has the power over policing, will not stop the police killings of unarmed black people or the racism that pervades all of our institutions. Many of the proposed reforms being introduced in Congress would be progressive improvements, such as a ban on chokeholds, ending the qualified immunity of police from being sued, mandating body cameras, and ending the transfer of surplus military equipment to local police. But none of these reforms get to the question of power. We need community control of the police in order to transform the practices and culture of policing so that it serves and protects those who are now oppressed and exploited instead of the property and privileges of the powerful elites. We need community control in order to have the ability to clean house and rid police departments of the racism and brutality embodied in the living, breathing racist and sadistic and disturbed people in their ranks. Beyond policing, we need a socialist economic democracy that empowers the racially oppressed and the economically exploited to receive the full value of their labor and provide for their own communities. We need a democratic and ecological socialism so we have the power to meet the basic needs of all within ecological limits. From protest to power, it will take more than cries for justice that appeal to the power structure in vain to hope that it will respond and reform itself. We must impose our demands on the power structure. Imposing our demands means in the first instance, raising the cost to the power structure of not agreeing to our demands so high that the power structure is compelled to concede. We raise the cost through sustained, disruptive, nonviolent action in the streets and through taking our votes away from the power structure's 
two-party system of capitalist rule by voting for independent left opposition candidates. Securing our demands on the power structure means restructuring the power. With respect to policing, we must make the police accountable to the people and no longer let them police themselves in their own interests and in the interests of the existing power structure that supports the police to reinforce racial and class hierarchies. The uprising sparked by racist police brutality is also an uprising against the economic exploitation and insecurity that working people of all races are experiencing. It is at this intersection of racial oppression and class exploitation where working people of all races must unite. As workers of any race, we cannot secure our economic prosperity as long as racism divides and disempowers us. The uprising is giving expression to the widespread outrage at how the two governing parties of the United States are presiding over a failed state. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed this failure for all to see. With 4% of the world's population, the U.S. has 30% of the infections and deaths. Trump is incompetent and indifferent. Biden is invisible and incoherent. Coming on the heels of the videographed murder of another black man, Ahmed Arbery by white vigilantes, and of the shooting death of a black woman, Breonna Taylor, by plainclothes police breaking unannounced into her apartment in the middle of the night. The George Floyd murder has exposed for all to see how the United States has long been a failed state for black people who have suffered under a centuries-old pandemic of racism. Demanding Community Control The first week of the uprising has featured cries for justice. Black Lives Matter, no justice, no peace. I can't breathe. Hands up, don't shoot. We now need to go beyond calling for justice from the existing power structure to organizing our own power to make the power structure implement our demands. To change who has the power over policing, we call for community control of the police. We are not talking about feckless review boards or community policing, which can be a good policing practice. We are talking about publicly elected police commissions with the power to hire and fire police chiefs and independently investigate and sanction police misconduct. The power over policing must shift from self-policing by police departments to the people who the police are supposed to protect and serve. With community control, we can weed out cops who are racist or sadistic. The Hawkins-Walker campaign also calls for a Johnny Gamage law to require a federal investigation and, when warranted, federal prosecution of police who violate the civil rights of a person, including bodily injury and death. Only a federal investigation and prosecution can have the distance and independence to impartially mete out equal justice under the law, because district attorneys and state attorneys general are too close to local police forces with whom they work on a daily basis. Johnny Gamage was suffocated to death by police in 1995. We call for cutting bloated police budgets and reinvesting the savings in proven crime reduction programs like youth jobs, recreation, and counseling. 
fully funded community schools with wraparound services, affordable housing, free public transit, and tuition-free public colleges and trade schools. Instead of over-policing and mass incarceration, we should be fighting crime by fighting poverty. Underlying poverty and economic despair is also fueling the current uprising. The Hawkins-Walker campaign calls for universal economic security through an economic bill of rights that provides federal guarantees of a living wage job, an income above poverty, affordable housing, comprehensive health care, lifelong tuition-free public education, and a secure retirement. Uprooting the intersection of racial oppression and class exploitation. Racial oppression has been central to the system of capitalist economic exploitation in this country since the dispossession of indigenous people and the enslavement of Africans began in the 1600s. This capitalist system of intersecting racial oppression and class exploitation manifests itself today in a growing race and class inequality, police brutality and mass incarceration, and military bloat, wars, and coups abroad, which blow back home in the form of militarized policing and the over-policing of working-class communities of color. The current policing system evolved from the white militias that stole land from the Indians and captured runaway slaves. The uprising against police brutality is inherently an uprising against the system of racial oppression and class exploitation that is the current system of policing protects. It is no accident that the current uprising gives expression to a confluence of outrage against both racism and economic hardship. The Black Lives Matter movement that began six years ago after the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson continued to grow as the nation witnessed death after death of black people at the hands of the police. Throughout this period, U.S. police have continued to kill people, disproportionately people of color, at a steady pace of around 1,000 a year. Of the 10,000 or so cases of police killings in the 10-year period from 2005 to 2014, only 153 officers were charged, or about 1.5%. Of these cases, less than half led to felony convictions, compared to a 70% conviction rate for the general population. Since 1995, the U.S. Department of Justice has declined to take 96% of cases of police misconduct referred to it. Ten years ago, the Occupy movement exploded across the nation in response to the last economic collapse when, as we chanted at the time, banks got bailed out, we got sold out. Both then and now, the Federal Reserve made trillions available to the banks at little to no interest, while the people received minimal economic relief. The stock market soars, and working people struggle to make ends meet. The movement for economic justice in the last two years has been highlighted by 400,000 workers going on strike, the largest numbers in three decades. 
During the COVID-9 pandemic, there have been hundreds of strikes, many conducted by workers without union representation against employers. Service workers, transit workers, warehouse workers, delivery people, grocery store stalkers and clerks, and other, quote, essential workers are demanding COVID-19 safety protections, higher wages, and better health benefits. As working people ourselves, Howie Hawkins is a retired Teamster, Angela Walker is a working truck driver. We understand what working people are going through and support their self-organized actions for economic justice. The daily demonstrations we have experienced for the last 10 days, encompassing over 500 locations across the United States, amount to a civil uprising as big and as wide as this country has ever seen. While we cannot expect daily demonstrations on this scale to continue indefinitely, we should expect of ourselves to continue our actions on a sustainable basis. Our community actions for racial justice and our workplace actions for economic justice are both inherently, if not yet consciously, aimed at the capitalist system where racial oppression and economic exploitation intersect. We should work to make that connection visible and bring both movements together in solidarity. Defeating the Counter-Revolution As these movements for racial and economic justice converge in the current uprising, we must be careful not to let the actions of a violent fringe make us all pawns in their counter-revolutionary narratives of Donald Trump and the neo-fascist far right. Trump is a social arsonist who is fomenting white vigilante police and military violence against nonviolent protesters. Then he blames the protesters for the violence. Videos from across the country show nonviolent protests becoming violent confrontations when the police show up to disperse the demonstrations. Violent responses from the fringe of the protests is just what Trump and the right-wing racists want in order to spread fear in white suburban and rural America against multicultural urban America. It is Trump's strategy for winning white votes as the self-styled, quote, law and order president. It is the far-right strategy for provoking a race war, which Trump has implied with his tweets about a civil war, if he is removed from office. The multiracial character of the nonviolent protests is a great strength of the movement that conveys our message of solidarity and justice for all, and is a hopeful harbinger for the future. Most of the demonstrations have been initiated by young black people, and the overwhelming numbers of people from all races have remained nonviolent. Unfortunately, there has also been a problem of white privilege and arrogance at some protests where a minority of young white people have hijacked the message by initiating vandalism, arson, and confrontations with police. This activity is deeply disrespectful of the black people who organize these demonstrations as nonviolent demonstrations. Videos from across the country show black people trying to stop white people from tagging buildings with graffiti and from vandalism, arson, and instigating fights with police. These white people seem to come from outside the community. There are also reports that organized white racists are among the instigators of violence. Three white vigilantes were arrested this week 
after bringing loaded guns, fireworks, and Molotov cocktails to protests in Las Vegas. The violence undermines the mass movement. People join movements to support a positive agenda. Vandals and fighters not only chase people away from the movement, they play into the hands of reactionaries like Trump, who want excuses to violently crack down on the nonviolent movement. Trump's threat to use the military against people exercising First Amendment rights is not legal under either the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act or the 1807 Insurrection Act. The U.S. military has never been used to stop people from exercising their constitutional rights. Service members take an oath to uphold the Constitution, but Trump doesn't care about legality. He's sending a message intended to provoke more violence. As for the so-called lesser evil, one of Joe Biden's comments on the uprising speaking in a black church was to say that the police should shoot assailants in their legs instead of their hearts. Biden's focus on police tactics instead of police brutality and racism shows once again that supporting the lesser evil just opens the door for greater evils. To defeat the counter-revolution, we need a united front of the independent left against both the greater evil and the lesser evil. We can defeat the hard-right Republicans, not by relying on the soft-right Democrats, but by building our own power to advance our own demands independently in our communities, at our workplaces, and in the elections. And finally, a piece published at spin.com. This is written by Michael Franti. From protest to progress, how to turn marching into actual change. Ever since the 8 minute and 46 second video of George Floyd having the life choked out of him by a Minneapolis police officer while being held down by two others who were all guarded by a fourth who looked the other way while a fire department employee repeatedly told them to check his pulse as she saw he was unconscious. Ripped through the screens and hearts of millions of Americans, we have witnessed a revolution 400 years in the making play out on our streets, social and corporate media outlets, dinner tables, and workplaces. All over the globe, We've seen massive actions take place in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. For weeks, our phones were filled with a 24-hour stream of shaky handheld videos, poignantly and often hilariously worded protest signs. And millions of people overnight had their passions ignited to raise their voices about ending systemic racism and police brutality in America. Instagrammers went from being epidemiological experts on COVID to being experts on race in America. And for several weeks, it seemed like cute cat videos were gone forever. Through the chance of no justice, no peace, the sting of pepper spray and tear gas, the smell of hope for meaningful change is in the air. While activists and police have taken a pause from squaring off on a daily basis, city streets remain emboldened with the bright yellow letters of Black Lives Matter. And yet, there are still many high-profile cases of black men and women dying at the hands of the police. 
yet we still haven't seen any arrests of the killers of high-profile cases of Breonna Taylor or Elijah McClain, let alone cases like Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta or Ahmed Arbery, killed by a former cop while running, who seemed to have drifted out of the national consciousness almost as quickly as they came in. Meanwhile, the historically systemically racist systems that have created the climate for all these and so many other injustices to occur remain largely, if not entirely, intact, at least for the moment. So many people have asked, what did all the protesting do? Have we accomplished anything? And why do things feel exactly the same as before? During my decades of activism in the streets, for all types of issues, and through music, I have often asked myself the same question. Does the world really change because I painted a sign asking it to? What I've learned through it all is, measure your protest by your progress. I believe that the strategy of protesting is as important as the passion that goes into it. You can't have change without thousands of people looking at an issue that breaks their hearts over and over again, finally standing up and saying, enough. And you can't create actual change if strategies aren't drawn up and acted upon to achieve tangible goals, even after the flames of passion have withered. In order to create a strategy, we've got to be clear in the outcomes we are trying to achieve and then create a roadmap to getting there. Here are some of the changes I believe are necessary and attainable in the near future. Police accountability. We need to see violent and corrupt police arrested, charged immediately, have them tried swiftly, and held accountable for their crimes. Ending qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is one of the many structural factors that make it difficult to hold police officers accountable for wrongdoing. Essentially, it is a law that when invoked protects a government official from civil lawsuits or from going through the costs of having to go to court and protects police officers from liability for all actions taken while on the job except those that violate clearly established law. It's one of the reasons why cops who do bad stuff don't have charges brought up against them. Or to put it more plainly, you can't fucking sue the cops. Prosecutors around the country know that even some of the most egregious cases of police violence with videos and multiple eyewitness accounts will never even get off the ground in a courtroom because of this immunity. So even if we protest and meme and get mad as hell until we change this law, we are going to get the same results over and over again. Violent cops will continue to serve a system that was set up since the abolition of slavery through the Jim Crow era, through the civil rights movement, through the war on drugs, into the era of mass incarceration and over-policing, to prevent African Americans from sharing the same benefits of American society that white citizens have taken for granted for generations. Defunding and demilitarizing police departments. This isn't just about taking money out of policing. It's about looking at public safety from a 30,000 foot level and looking at houselessness, mental health issues, noise complaints, addiction issues, domestic disputes, etc. Not as police issues, 
but things that can be better solved by people and organizations that are trained specifically for these issues and funneling dollars once earmarked for police into proven safety programs that work. The vast majority of 911 calls are for issues like these. Upstream solutions that address poverty, joblessness, education, health care, affordable housing, and the economic health of communities at their roots are massively more cost-effective and yield far more productive and less violent results than just asking armed police to show up and deal with issues like these that they aren't trained for. I personally know a lot of cops who have told me time and again they are not the ones best prepared for the majority of the calls they respond to. Ending Mass Incarceration America's failed war on drugs has left us incarcerating 25% of the world's prison population, 2.6 million people, even though we are only 5% of the world's total population. It's time to turn back the ridiculous long sentencing that has resulted from the Clinton crime bill of the 90s. Treat addiction as a health issue and federally legalize pot, finally. We also need to elect district attorneys in every county who are committed to ending the cycle of mass incarceration and probation, which has crippled black communities and families. Watch Ava DuVernay's Academy Award-nominated documentary, 13th, to fully understand the history behind this issue. Normalizing anti-racism. Just as it has become normal in the Trump era for people to openly espouse their racist and white supremacist views, we need to make it normal for all people to stand up to racism wherever we see it. Ending voter suppression. None of the above can be achieved if we don't have access to voting, allow people convicted of felonies to vote, and end the practice of redrawing district lines to keep power out of the hands of black voters. Electing leaders who care and will fight. We need to mobilize young people, voters of color, and others who have been made to believe that voting doesn't make a difference. Our ancestors fought for this right, and it's important that we don't deface their memory with our apathy in not showing up to the polls. Believe me, I'm not someone who thinks voting is the only thing we need to do to fix racism in America. On the contrary, I'm someone who believes it's one important part of a strategy to vote every day with your voice, your dollars, your feet hitting the pavement, your heart to guide you daily with what's right, and your mind to change course when necessary. In order to affect structural change, we need to vote those out of office who continue to benefit from the current status quo and vote in people dedicated to bringing an end to systemic racism. Without this, very little of the things I mentioned above can actually happen. So I'd say voting is pretty fucking important. Do we get the 100% perfect candidate all the time? No. We never do. It's kind of like life. You make the best of what you can with what you're provided with, and then you fight like hell to make it work. Reconciliation. When apartheid ended in South Africa, there were years of hearings and people sitting together 
to hear the millions of crimes that had happened to Africans over the centuries by whites in power. There were trials, reparations, new laws created, and tearful moments of healing by all. America is long overdue for a national process of reconciliation. If we want to see a change in laws and actions, we need to see a massive shift in American culture and an understanding of the conditions black people have endured since being forcibly brought to this continent as enslaved Africans until the present. This may seem like an overwhelming list, but to those of us who've heard these changes only spoken about in black history classes for decades and are now seeing them discussed on TV by leaders at the highest level, there is passionate optimism. In order to get some of these changes across the finish line, we need to keep the conversation active, continue to raise our voices and see people voting en masse up and down the ticket in every election with a new belief that activism is about raising your voice and amplifying the voices of others who are doing the work and actively participating in the battle to normalize anti-racism, empower people to positions who are committed to bringing about a substantive policy change that can wield real justice for the victims of police brutality, housing, jobs, and banking discrimination, mass incarceration, and the hatred we so often see played out on the handheld videos we see on a daily basis. Oh yeah, with love in our hearts, leading the way. We got this. And that will just about wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, if you want to uh, reach out to me, you can go to bernie-2020.com. You'll find all the back episodes there. You'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this and my other podcasts free and independent. And here is Michael Franti and Spearhead with the song, The Future. Thanks for listening. It is.
They tell you that war is a permanent thing And American Idol kids really can sing Piehead's on a rescue mission Put your cancer in remission People starving, malnutrition Work your abs into condition Oh no, now they're after your soul And they're telling you now that you're losing control Well it's true, cause I just got sick of it all They say the 